Welcome to the Data Busters podcast, the podcast for all things school data. With the long summer break within touching distance, it's that odd time of year when everyone is both wishing the end of term was here, but also trying to get everything done before the final whistle blows. In this episode of the Data Busters podcast, we look forward to sharing the second part of our discussion on all things data with our very special guest, Professor Becky Allen. I'm Richard Selfridge, author of Data Busting for Schools, and joining me as always is Jamie Pembroke, Data Buster Extraordinaire, Insight Facilitator, and all-round data guru. Hello, Jamie. How's the world of data with you? Oh, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it's good. Um, spending a lot of time talking to Insight Schools about the usual sorts of things, um, progress measures and what have you. So having some interesting conversations there. And um, we were out data busting recently, weren't we? We did. We managed to get to, uh, we, I mean, I want to call it Manchester, but I know that everybody in Manchester will say, no, it wasn't Manchester. It was a particular bit of the Northwest. So we were in Ashton under Lyme. Yeah, but I believe that you, you can get away with calling it Greater Manchester. All ah, right. Well, in which we were in Greater Manchester then, exactly, which is yeah. a great place, obviously. All the bees As I pointed out, yeah, you, you can get away with calling these places Greater Manchester, seemingly, but you can't get away with calling places around Birmingham Greater Birmingham. So um, I'm yeah. always intrigued by that. Exactly. Let's move on before we <laughs> get into trouble. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, exactly. Um, but speaking of Greater Birmingham, where we have plans. Um, but uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly, just, I know exactly. But the um, uh, yeah, no. So um, we did the data busting um, day last week. Um, but actually, the thing which we're more excited about is the fact that we've now sold out of our first uh, the the first inaugural data disco. Disco, disco. Yeah. Absolutely. So disco standing for Data in Schools Conference. Let's see what we did there. Uh, so we, we came up with this um, idea for having a series of conferences about data. So it's not just me and you. We've got Josh along and we're going to have some head teachers as well talking about their experiences of data. But what's really prompted this is, believe it or not, may, we may have mentioned this previously, it's now 10 years since the government first started talking about getting rid of levels. Yep. So it was about, yeah, it was 2013 when we first started hearing about this whole assessment about levels concept and everything that came after that. So uh, obviously uh, levels have been around in the national curriculum for a long time, since 1988, mid-90s. Mid well, okay, national curriculum was 1988, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, that's right. right. And yeah. then, uh, okay, so it was 90s that the, the levels came out. But they've been a long, around a long time. They were part of the furniture and everyone was used to them. And then, as we know, they got rid of them, and that really kind of um, turned things on its head, really. And I think that uh, schools felt like uh, they'd had the sort of rug pulled out from under their feet a bit. And uh, then we're told it is up to you now to find appropriate methods of assessment and tracking and blah, 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 blah. And so schools set about mainly recreating levels and local authorities recreated levels and maps recreated levels and software companies recreated levels and i think slowly but surely over time we we me and you but others as well have restarted question the way that data is used in schools and and um and we thought it'd be a good opportunity to have a look at what we've learned over the last 10 years of and it's been quite chaotic really so we mm. have learned a lot and i think we're starting to get a good idea now of what works and what doesn't and what's nonsense and what isn't so that's the point of Disco. So Disco Warrington um, sold out really quickly. Um, and we have organised one in London. So Disco London is at Brentford Community Stadium, where the mighty Brentford Football Club play. Um, so we're, we've got our... Uh, that's on the 9th of November. And tickets are still available um, for that. So that's 9th of November. You can find it on Eventbrite. And we are in the process of sorting one, as you mentioned, in Solihull, not Greater Birmingham. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> Solihull. no, no. Solihull, exactly. That will be um, Disco Midlands. And then we will have Disco Southwest probably in Bristol. So mm. we're probably going to organise one in Bristol. Exactly. Really looking forward to these as well, because obviously you and I have been doing data buster days. And so, you know, we're, we're regularly um, talking to people and, um, and, you know, relating anecdotes about uh, the experience that we've had or from others, their experience of, uh, of just changing the way which they use data in school. But these conferences will be, um, we're really looking forward to being able to 
have guests in who will be able to then you know relate yeah. case studies and talk through things yeah and so and to really have that discussion as you're saying just to, to make sure that people are actually talking about data in a meaningful way um and not yeah. in a defensive way in a in a positive let's actually take control of this stuff and and make it work for us and see what other people have done and think about what you can do yourself yeah yeah so and, and it's not just about you know, I mean, I obviously I'm kind of obsessed with progress measures and trying to point out that most progress measures are nonsense and cause you to bend your sort of systems out of shape. But it's not just about that. It's about um, it's about the use of standardized tests. It's about how you report to governors. It's about how you report to parents as well. Um, it, it's it's kind of all aspects of of the way, you know, of, of data in schools and the way that that data is, is collated um, and presented, analysed, or what have you. So uh, there's obviously uh, a lot of data in schools. It's not just for primary as well. But, uh, primary, by the way, it's for secondary as well. So you know, we'll, we'll talk about target setting. We'll talk about the various methods that um, that secondary schools employ when it comes to sort of tracking pupil progress or, or whatever. So um, it will be cross phase. Uh, we will have. Um, Hopefully, in both all of these events, we're going to have someone from the primary sector, some from the primary phase, talking about their experiences of using data and minimizing data, improving um, sort of efficiency, managing workload, in, in, increasing the information, the value, the output of the, the, the data, and secondary as well. We're very keen to make sure that it, it, it covers all bases. Excellent. And it's good that all those things you've just talked about lead us in perfectly into this podcast. So this is the second of, of two um, podcasts where we share the, the, um, this discussion, which we had wide ranging, fascinating discussion about education data with Professor Becky Allen, who we introduced last time, who, for those of you who don't know, just go and find out about what Becky does. She writes fantastically. Yeah. Um, she's hugely influential. And and this half of the uh, of the the discussion which we had with her covers all those things you've just talked about. You know, talked about you know what do how do we talk to governors? What do we do with information? What you know um, how should one use standardised assessment? Um, the limitations, but also the benefits of it, and so on. So, l- looking forward to getting Becky on um, yeah. and uh, and having that second half of the uh, um, of the discussion we had with her. Well, it, 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 her book, The Next Big Thing in School Improvement, which you and I have both read, it's actually that chapter or those chapters on the data wave, um, as she calls it, um, which, which is what we've kind of surfed <laughs> over the yeah, last and 10 had to years, deal with you know. Being in those um, choppy waters, exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, since the 90s, I suppose, but it, it got very choppy uh, 10 years ago. Um, and I think what that did was it, that really kind of blew the lid and we started to question what we've been doing. I think up until that, that point, it was a bit of an illusion. And then suddenly the illusion, that's like the, the glass had smashed and you kind of see things. Oh, this is crazy. It was her, her book and particularly that, that chapter that made me sort of think, yeah, we, we need to kind of get together and talk about, about this. So it, it, it was the thing that prompt, prompted me to get in touch with you and start thinking about organizing these conferences. Excellent. Good. Well, in which case then we will um, welcome Becky on for um, this fantastic uh, discussion. I hope you enjoy it very much, everybody. Um, and um, I say, so um, without any further ado, uh, enjoy Professor Becky Allen discussing things with the data. Are there big things that could happen around the accountability system that could change things for schools for the better? So when we're thinking about data, we don't think about what to collect. We think, what am I thinking about changing? What behaviours am I thinking about changing in my school? And then you work backwards and say, what do I need to know about the state of current practice in my school in order to inform myself as to how I might help things and make them change? Mm-hmm. And when you think about those things that way, that tells you immediately what you need to know in your school about practice. Um, and... What you also conclude when you look at things this way, and maybe this is controversial, but almost always you're reporting to governors and to local authorities and Matt doesn't really have anything useful to do in the system. And I say it's not useful in the sense that like everything that we do in the schooling system as teachers and leaders should be driving towards this idea that we're trying to promote learning taking place. Mm-hmm. And what it's very hard for a govern- group of governors sitting around in a room to do is do anything in that yeah. room. 
that actually helps promote learning. Um, and so it's very frustrating when you see heads who spend so much time preparing their head teacher reports. I mean, I, I don't think there should be any head teacher reports, written reports that are being prepared for governors. Because for me, I've yet to see a situation where that has done something that's helped promote learning within the school. And usually they're staring at a set of data and pretending that it's real and pretending yeah. that it is measuring the effectiveness of the school when it's largely often very internal data that is therefore only benchmarked about against its own fiction of what is reasonable and, and it doesn't contain any information about what's yeah. going well or what's not going well within the school. What what happens if just just a uh, your opinion on standardised tests because obviously that's is theoretically benchmarked and that that is an external assessment that you can buy in and they're very popular, uh, yeah. increasingly popular in primary schools. Um, what what are your thoughts on on those tests? I understand why they're used. Hmm. If I was appointed as a new head at a primary school, the first thing I would do is just do a bunch of them across the whole school to try and get my sense of where things were and the things I really cared about in the core subjects. Yeah. Um, but once I was an experienced head in that school and really understood the context, I'm more sceptical about the extent to which they're telling me useful things. And these are my concerns. Number one, as tests, they're necessarily not curriculum aligned because mm -hmm. they can't be, because they have to be suitable for for um, schools that are teaching things at different points in time and how well you do in different elements of the assessment is going to be sensitive to when the children are being tested relative to the, um, the episode of teaching that took place. So, for example, you may do the assessments and they may claim that they can give you a subscore and an element of maths, for example, I don't know, fractions or proportionate reasoning in general. But actually how your school happens to do on that element relative to other schools is really going to just tell you something about when you taught it relative to other schools. So this issue that they're not curriculum aligned, I think, was a big issue. And I think it's one of the reasons why post-COVID, um, you ended up seeing lots of the schools not go down that much. And the reason why they don't go down that much is, say you've got a year four class and they've just spent a load of time sitting at home because COVID happens, and then they come back and you give them a year four paper. Well, that year four paper has been designed so that it's not really that sensitive to things that should have been taught recently. And it can't be because... It needs to be suitable for people who haven't yet taught those topics. So it weighs very heavily on competency in maths in years three, two, one, and so on, right? And so then you wonder why the math scores don't fall that much on the standardized tests as a result of COVID. Well, it's because actually, if you miss a short episode of teaching, the test um, isn't really asking that many questions on things that have been recently taught because they can't be designed that way as curriculum-aligned tests. So that's my first issue. Um, my second issue is with them is that they are often not sensitive to the things you want to fix. Things you want to fix are arithmetic fluency, um, phonetic decoding, in general, reading fluency, um, Security of understanding of really core ideas in maths, like proportionate reasoning. Things we don't want to fix are things that the tests are designed to test. I mean, a thing called reading comprehension, whatever that is, so a kid does poorly, like what, what is that and what are we going to intervene to do with it? But even in the case of maths, there's a whole load of stuff on the key stage two maths curriculum that I think we could all agree that you definitely wouldn't want to pull a student out of the classroom and reteach it if they didn't know it of which, you know, the classic one we all laugh about is Roman numerals. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in the maths curriculum that is not core to developing your talent as a mathematician, um, where, where, where what matters a lot is, you know, your level of understanding of numeracy and things like proportionate reasoning is a really big thing in lower key stage two. And so we're not really designing a test to make choices about interventions. Because to make choice about interventions, we should test the things we want to intervene on. And then my third concerns about them is that when you get the data back and you're essentially getting across school comparisons of how well you're doing, is that we know those cross school comparisons are going to be sensitive to conditions 
the conditions mm. under which they're sat. For mm. many of these assessments, they still say um, the length of the assessment can be anywhere between. And it might mm -hmm. say between 40 minutes and an hour. And you think, well, which is it? Like, it's really going to make quite a big difference. Like, and I care whether other schools are choosing to do 40 minutes or an hour. For the conditions of sitting, like the perceptions of stakes, like how important do the children feel that the tests are? I cannot tell you how sensitive test scores are to persistence, the idea for a child that they're going to try hard or whether they're not. Uh, but also, you know, the timing of teaching and so on, as I said. So if I get my test scores back and they look a little bit worse for my year four class in reading comprehension given the demographic of the school than we might expect how worried should I be and the answer to that is I don't know I don't know whether you should be worried or not because there are a number of different reasons why your score might have been lower one of which is that you need to do some interventions to improve reading fluency or phonetic decoding, but there's a load of other reasons why. And so that's like, you know, that's why I say they're less useful once you've got to know your school, because you're likely to know a little bit better than the test is, like how things are going. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That's really useful because again, we so we talk regularly, and again, the the standardised assessments are you know they're a, they're a tool. They're quite useful. They're a bit blunt, you know, and um, as ever, they're better in the middle of a distribution than at the tails. It's hard to assess those pupils who are running out front and who are struggling to keep up. Um, but as you say, in the first instance, they, they they give you some information. At least you can group pupils broadly into those things. But then when you get um, close, and I think that breakdown that you've given there of of the concerns around the assessments because so many things can factor them. It's one of those, it can influence them. That's an interesting thing. And, and I know that you've also, um, as a result of, I think possibly of all of those things you've discuss, discussed, um, your thoughts on using assessments to, um, to measure progress in the way that that whole data wave encouraged everybody to think in that way, to think, mm -hmm. okay, measure point one, point two, um, and what, what's the difference between the two? How how's your thinking on that measuring of progress changed? Do you think you really can measure progress these days? How's that changed? When we think about this weird thing called progress, it's always really good to think about the situation where we're really confident we can measure progress. And then think, what is it that's so weird about that situation that means we can't just replicate it everywhere? So um, I like to think personally about the Times Table Rockstars grid where the grid starts like as a kind of reddish color and it gradually becomes more and more green. And when students start getting better at doing their times tables, we're able to observe that progress, and they are. And it's real. Um, and it's definitely measuring something that we believe is real. Um, and the reason why we're confident that we understand it is we're doing something that we rarely do within the education system. We're measuring that child against themselves. Mm. It's known as an ipsative comparison. So we're always saying, are you better than you were? Mm. Now, within schools, we rarely do that. We nearly always say, are you doing better than children who used to be the same as you used to be are doing now? Um, and so that's this idea of relative progress. We're saying, given, always saying, given where you used to be in the distribution, have you climbed up it or have you climbed down it? And the reason why we nearly always make those relative comparisons is because we have to. And we have to do it because nearly always we're not making comparisons of a static curriculum. Times tables is a rare example of, of a situation where we're saying, given a static curriculum, which is the 12 by 12 grid, are you getting better at it? Whereas usually we're saying, OK, we've taught a load of new stuff. Like, now, how are you doing on that new stuff, given that we know nothing about what you knew in the past, because it was an episode before we taught you? Mm. And then that's why we have to, therefore, say we make these relative comparisons. And the challenge in making relative comparisons is that whilst students are incredibly different to each other in attainment, and we've already talked about that, so we can say lots of things really confidently about saying we're confident these two children in the class are different to each other in how good they are at maths. When we're talking about changes in how good you are, 
actually the changes that we tend to make relative to each other, so the extent to which we move up and down the bell curve or the ladder within our class of how good we are compared to our peers, tends to be relatively small. We tend to only ever make relatively small jumps up and down the distribution. Um, That can be hard for some people to appreciate. Um, It's not true, by the way, for young children like four and five-year-olds. You can see children make enormous leaps from being um, complete non-readers to suddenly being one of the most fluent readers in the class because you're at a period of time where developmentally things are rapidly changing. But we quickly, by the time we're in key stage two, get to the point when at the start of the year, the students who are sitting at the top of the ladder are fairly similar to the students Mm. who are likely to be at the top of the ladder at the end of the year. So when we're talking about this thing called relative progress, we're actually saying, like, you're making tiny shifts in your shuffle of where you're ordered within the class. How confident are we in our judgments about how we've reshuffled the class? So I'm sure that you can appreciate that under those circumstances. Like, we have relatively high, you know, uncertainty that we've got the shuffling, the amount of shuffling that's taken place exactly right. And yet that's what we're really doing when we're trying to look at the extent to which students are making better or worse relative progress to each other. So, so, so that, yeah. that, um, so yeah, that, that, that measure of shuffling is sort of magnified up to a national level. So you, you, you look at how that child has shuffled along in, in the sort of the national cohort. And that's the sort of the basis of value added whether that be key stage two or or, or progress eight and those measures are deemed to be some measure or indication of the school effect on children but but are they are they effective tools for what we're (laughs) expecting them to be i mean are they doing the job that we want them to do Well, there's a few more complicated things going on when it comes to talking about these schools because we've got the pesky question of the demographics of the school, because yeah. we know a huge amount of learning is taking place outside the school and at home. Yeah. And to what extent does the school deserve the credit or the punishment for what may or may not be happening at home? Um, I think your starting point here is to, first of all, just ignore the reality of the flaws of the measures and just say, first of all, in theory, like, do we believe that there are systematic differences in how effective schools are at teaching a core curriculum. Um, Systematic differences and how effective they are, and particularly at the extremes, I think that that's true. Um, I think the reality of lots of schools is they are very similar to each other. And what I mean by that is you just, you have a collection of teachers um, who are more and less effective, not least linked to the stage of their career. You have newly qualified teachers who we know are always less effective than they're likely to be um, further on in their career. And at primary schools, one of the things that head teachers do is try to make sure that the class of children get a mix of experiences of teachers Mm. and thereby sort of muting the impact of teacher quality And therefore sort of averaging it out. So I think lots of children have very similar experiences to each other across schools, which is not to say the individual experiences are not unique in some kind of way. I believe there are differences, though, particularly at the extremes. Um, When we talk about comparisons, I never think it's meaningful to compare schools that serve different demographics because it's not possible to use statistics to separate out the impact of the demographics of the community from what that school should be doing with that, given they have that community. So if I personally, when I go and visit schools, I will always go and find the FFT still has one a website called the Families with Schools website. Yeah. I will go and look up the school. I will go and look at who their comparisons are. So we're looking at schools that share a similar size and a similar free school meal profile, similar proportion of English language learners. And then I will want to go and look and see how they're doing and how they're doing in different subjects. And I think for the most part, that's a reasonable comparison to make. I mean, the things that violate those comparisons are 
Well, when you're looking at particularly at um, secondary schools at faith selection, I never want to compare faith schools with non-faith schools because there's always going to be stuff going on around social class because families who get their act together to go to church on a Sunday to get through admissions processes are largely middle class. And we know that from um, the research, including research that I've done. Um, we worry about um, other forms of selection and off-rolling. So losing students as they reach the age of 14 and so on from the system. Um, and we worry within the system about how um, children send children are being treated in the, in the statistics. Um, so those are the things that we worry about. That said, right, um, we talk about these kind of worries of things we can't observe that make the cohorts of children different from each other. I think there's evidence that we worry about that more than we need to. And I think that evidence comes from the EEF and all of their running of randomised control trials. So the thing about the randomised control trials, which are enormously expensive, is they, um, they take interventions that are taking place in schools and they get a selection of students who are in, of schools who are interested in trying them and they randomise the schools so that only half of them do them and that half of them don't. And then we ask the question, does that lead to more secure findings than a situation where we just go out and find out which schools are trying things out and we control for all the social context of the schools and try and look at differences in effectiveness? There was a paper written by some academics looking at that exact question actually showing that we can take observed data on schools and try to make inferences about which policies are effective and which aren't that look exactly the same as the things that we observe in randomised controlled trials. So they use this study to say, look, you know, in reality, um, at the level of a school, we do have good data on the typical social circumstances of that school. And if we want to try and make inferences about how well that school's doing, um, we can largely do it. And there's always exceptions. Um, but when we talk about things that are going on, like things like off-rolling, where schools are systematically taking tranches of children um, and, and trying to get them off their book for GCSEs. Um, we've written, when we were at Data Lab, um, papers on the extent to which this was happening in the system. And whilst it was happening in the system, and it was really bad practice where it was happening, the vast majority of the 3,000 secondary schools in the country were not doing this and had nothing to do with it. It's a relatively small set of schools at any point in time who are really sort of cheating the system when it comes to performance tables. Mm. And I think it's, again, it's fascinating to hear that all the, just all of these nuances as to, as to how we you know, make comparisons between schools, make comparisons between pupils, um, and as you say, the, the, the reasons why we might want to have done these things um, in the past and why we're doing them now. And again, I think it's worth it's really been useful to kind of interrogate this sort of the experience of the data wave and what that what the, how that affected what happened in schools um, and what we've what we do now. Um, the thing which I want to move on to is is to sort of almost after the data wave. So we did all of that work, particularly in the 2010s. There was lots of lots mm. of thought and movement and, uh, you know, the. The government was particularly interested in, in a lot of these things at the time. It seems they're much less interested at the moment. Obviously, we've mm. had an unusual five years, what with both Brexit and COVID and a number of other things. Mm. Um, so things have moved on. So, so education has, it almost seems to have dropped off the headlines. So it, it, to a certain extent, there is, I suspect it, it's a bit like starting again. So, so for now, how do you think this? How do you think things are are potentially likely to progress? How are we going to move in terms of in terms of the data we use in schools and uh, and uh, both um, the statutory stuff, the, the the national picture from a government point of view, but also for as schools move through this? I, what are your thoughts on this? Should we be um, scrapping key stage two tests and putting in some kind of sampling, or should we be keeping them? Should we be changing things at GCSE? What's your thought on the political and and wider picture there? Well, I suppose first of all. Um, the Labour Party faces a couple of challenges around change. In the case of secondary schools, I think the challenge is that what you do with GCSEs and A-levels is inextricably linked to the curriculum. And there's a certain reluctance to impose something that's very costly in time on the system, regardless of what your desires may be. 
But there's something else going on, which is that whilst many people close to the Labour Party advisers are very in favour of alternative forms of assessment, we're suddenly facing um, the issues of what's going on around the large language models, the large the AI models, um, and um, students using ChatGPT and other things to 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 complete extended work. So actually, we've seen this sudden situation where our ability to break out of the idea that students go into a hall and sit exams in controlled conditions is something that quite at the moment it's quite hard to get your head around what you would do. So that's why I think um, we're a bit of a basis around what to do around GCSEs. And it's not that we all think the situation's great, it's just hard to unwind it in a way that's not very costly. The situation for Key Stage 2 is very different. Um, I don't think the case is compellingly being made yet, but I hope that the primary school, the primary sector is going to start a large lobby movement for a revision to the national curriculum. And the revision should be just a reductive one that we just cross bits out Um, because it's too big. um, And we can cross bits out that no secondary school teachers Um, think it's important to learn in primary school um, and we can move towards a system where students are able to just achieve a much higher degree of success in subjects and in skills where mastery is critical and maths is one of them um, and also that the skills that underlie English of reading and writing um, is the other and so I think we can if the primary sector wants to do it I think there's an opportunity to lobby for it to make the case And I think that there's not a big workload associated with just taking things out of the national curriculum. Even doing that and keeping the key stage tests as they currently are, I think will make things a lot better. Having a maths test where students can achieve a really good score that shows they're really confident in the primary curriculum is so much better than the status quo. Um, Do we have an opportunity to move to something else? Um, We probably do, because you can reform without disrupting other things. And I suppose my preference would be that we maintain an end of primary school assessment that's internally marked, zero stakes, um, and it could even be largely multiple choice um, to keep it cheap to run. Um, An end of primary school assessment that's just there for the parents and the secondary school, but not for the system as a whole. It's not used in accountability. It's just used as an information transfer. And in fact, I did one of these when I was at the end of of primary school. Even in a zero data system, the system existed where the county would run an assessment so the secondary school knew who they were getting. Um, And then on top of that, for the accountability system, I'd be running sample tests. I'd be running randomised sample tests. So schools, it would be announced this week. um, We want you to run um, an an arithmetic assessment on, um, you know, all all the students in your school who've got birthdays on the 15th and the 19th and the 21st of the month or whatever it is across all year groups. And we're going to run an assessment Um, And um, we can run that kind of sample test in any way we want across any year group on anything we want. And that would be just a far more sensible way for us to monitor what's going on within the primary school sector. And can I ask your thoughts on the reception baseline? Um, I, I suppose I'm kind of curious about it. And one of the reasons I'm curious about it is that Um, the people who develop the test are reporting very high degrees of consistency and reliability in the test, given that these are very, very young children. And it makes me worry about what it is they're assessing and whether we can achieve that consistency in practice. Um, So I worry about that. I find it weird to have a test that the schools themselves don't get to observe um, the outcomes of. So I can understand why the sector feels like it's so uncomfortable about it. 
um, being held accountable for something that you don't know what it is, I think is like psychologically like a really tough ask. Mm. But I can also see like given you decide you want an accountability system, I can see why you end up doing this. Like this is this is the logical con- consequence of yep. saying we need an accountability system yep. where we where we know whether children are making sufficient progress or not. It's one of the um, the, the, the sort of paradoxes or whatever of primary accountability is that everyone wants a progress measure but no one wants a baseline yes so they don't want it at a key stage one they don't want it in year one they don't want it in reception but they would rather have a progress measure than an attainment measure because attainment measures are seen to be unfair and, and they did and they did seriously fair. look at alternatives which yeah, is to yeah. look at attainment given the demographics of the school so they looked at whether they can collect good data on the social demographics of the schools mm. and they ended up concluding that that data just wouldn't be good enough it wouldn't right. be as reliable a measure of um, what it was reasonable to expect the school to achieve with the students right um but as I say, you know, the perennial problems primary schools is just primary schools are small. You get lucky, you get unlucky. And that's that's why when you observe the value added data schools like veer wildly about from one year to the next. It's not that we really believe no. the quality of primary education varies in that way. It's, no. it's an artifact of the cohorts passing through the school. Um, and we can't really get round that problem that we're judging the quality of the school on a relatively small and random group of children who happen to pass through that year sure yeah one of the things i've always found quite remarkable is that the dfe um their 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 threshold for suppressing data is six pupils so any Mm. sorry fewer than six so it for the that's for the performance table the public performance tables you have to have Mm. fewer than six and then they'll suppress it six Mm. And it's uh, in the IDSR, it's fewer than 11. They grey out and they don't perform any kind of statistical test on it. But uh, yeah, these are very, very small numbers. And I mm. just don't see how we can judge anything on the basis of six or more children. It just seems nuts to me. No, and it means there's just schools within the system who never, never get monitored. But, you know, we can't monitor them except by... Well, going going around and visiting, kicking the tires and so on in the old fashioned <laughs> way, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you've you've mentioned um, the the rise of things like ChatGTP and uh, how we're all mm. um, <clears throat> dealing with that rollout of uh, AI into into everyday life, um, which is one interesting thing. Um, and in in terms of um, the development of uh, of adaptive tests and sort of moving to beyond classical test theory, so rather than just having a child at a single written test and looking at using some kind of test that adapted, that adapts. This is always an interesting one to me because when you talk to people who actually design the test, they say, yeah, but the adaptive tests, well, they're not really that adaptive. But anyway, what are your thoughts? As to, do, you think we, do you think we're going to get large-scale um, uh, use of adaptive tests or are we going to stick with paper, effectively paper-based tests? Um, adaptive tests work well within a domain where there's such a thing as consistent thing as being good at the subject like the how yeah how 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 good you are on the scale and the, the test therefore adapts to the way that you respond to questions such that it feeds you the right questions subsequently and that works well for some subjects and not for others it largely works well for maths it's a strongly hierarchical subject where you can how good you are in one domain of maths is the same as how good you are in another domain of maths there's loads of other subjects where it's not the appropriate way to run assessments because in different parts of the subject you have different um, levels of competency at any point in time so i can see like adaptive tests leading us to get more precise measures of attainment within subjects like maths um, where we can instead of in gcse's running tiers we won't need to do that anymore because we can all start the same assessment and then we can move forward at different rates it can often mean that the tests overall can be much shorter um, we wouldn't need to run as many SATs maths tests as we do if we were mm. running an, assess- an, an adaptive test that was able to hone very quickly on the level of difficulty that was appropriate to that child and get the nuance of how good they were. And so you could argue those would be some advantages of running those kind of assessments. And I think in general, there's some bits and pieces of assessment that are getting a lot cheaper and easier to do um, in areas where it's really good. 
like reading fluency is one of them. This kind of thing of having children reading a screen and like the, the, the you know the computer's listening and getting good assessments of fluency. I think that's great, and we can get away from these weird comprehensive comprehension tests that don't quite measure the thing that we care about. Um, I think in general, assessment's going to change a little bit to the extent that we're going to get to grips with AI marking work at some point. Um, and I don't mean we just blithely hand um, computers bits of work and say, what do you think? But we give them the rubrics and we say, this is how we want this piece of work judged and can you judge it, please? And we will get to the point where um, AI is able to do that for us. And I think we'll get to that point relatively quickly. Um, so, so that, you know, that for me is a promising thing for, for teachers. And that's also interesting because, again, as you know, as so many of us working in education know, one of the hard things is that uh, so you can produce a decent assessment generally in mathematics. Mm -hmm. You can produce a, a, a reasonable assessment within reading, but writing is is not an easy thing to assess. And whilst people have looked at different systems, um, I don't. I, what are your thoughts on the, on that sort of comparative judgment and the potential for AI to to mark on that? You've touched on it a little bit. There. Yeah. Well, comparative judgment is rubric free, so it's yeah. saying you're a human being and we're not going to tell you anything about what good is, but just based on you being a human, what do you think? Which piece of work is better? And I think the people who are involved in comparative judgment say at the moment that the AI systems aren't great at doing that. They don't tend to mimic human behavior. Now, to me, that's interesting in itself because you can kind of ask the question, well, why can't they mimic us? What does it say about us and the way that we're making judgments? Mm. Um, and so the nervousness always with CJ is you just have to remember, like, if there's no rubric, like, what, what is it telling us? And what does it mean to be good at writing? And under what circumstances do we want to be explicit about what it means to be good at writing? And in what circumstances are we happy that we're making implicit human judgments about what good writing is and what's the consequence of that? And to what extent do we believe that the judgments we make as humans are reasonable and valid judgments? And so, you know, Comparative judgment can be okay and can work well in some circumstances, but it's quite an unusual way of assessing, given that we say we're not going to say what good is, we're not, not going to say how to do well, you've just got to do it, and then we're just going to decide as the kind of as the expert judges whether you're any good or not. It's, it's kind of weird, isn't it? It's one of those odd things, is Ali, is I can't say what good is, but I know what it is when I see it. See it, yes. <laughs> so that's really, yeah. so, so again, that's, it's been really good just to think about, you know, your thoughts on how things are moving forward and what, how things might progress. So we're kind of heading towards wrapping various things up. So a couple, a few more areas to think about. I mean, one of the key things that we all have to think about is in terms of the accountability system that we have within um, the education system. And obviously there's been lots of discussion about that of late because of various news stories that people will be aware of um, but in terms of the accountability what would your be your priority be in terms of, uh, of how you might think about developing it structuring it doing something with it well you've got the two halves of the accountability system don't you because you have Ofsted and you have the performance tables what we mm. don't know in the current system is the extent to which they're intrinsically linked like ultimately we don't know how much of the judgment that an inspector makes is really implicitly informed by them knowing what the data looks like when they walk in the door it used to be the case it was explicitly informed by it and that the judgment should be part of that in theory it's not supposed to be the case but in the reality we don't know um around the you know around the inspection system that's very difficult isn't it um um, I do think we should have an inspection system. I think our starting point should be, again, what's our goal? Um, the thing I worry about with, with an inspection system, we're trying to do two things. We're trying to like incentivize effort, try and encourage schools to pull themselves up to be the best they can be. But then more importantly, we're trying to identify the rare cases where there's serious dysfunction and do something about it. I would say the failing of the current system is that when we observe dysfunction, we don't have good mechanisms for doing anything about it. So mm. we can have arguments about how we make the judgment about whether you're inadequate or not. But ultimately, if we're not really putting in place the support systems to help the school sort themselves out and sort themselves out very quickly, then we can't really say that our inspection system is fit for purpose, is it? Now, Ofsted would say, oh, that's nothing to do with us. We just... We just make the judgment and walk away as, you know, as things collapse and burn to the ground. But I would kind of say, like, 
as a member of the public like that that's not really good enough is it um and right. and and we have to sort out support for underperforming schools um as for performance tables um I suppose, you know, it's always the old adage that however we measure things, things will get distorted and bend mm. towards the measures that we have, which is why I've always previously written that I would much prefer that we have an accountability system where nobody knows how we're going to hold them to account. And that each year, the way that we measure attainment within schools or the way, the way that we measure schools' behaviours will be not be pre-announced and we'll just decide from year to year at random how we're going to monitor it. A lot of the time we'll just do it as sample monitoring. There's no need to test the whole country every year. But we'll be testing all year groups, all subjects, in all kinds of plausible ways you could imagine. And that that would be the least dysfunctional way that the school system could be run and that we should be very explicit that the goal of schools should be to teach the national curriculum to the best of their abilities and do everything they can to promote learning within the schools. And, and there are no other rules within the system other than that. Excellent. Um, Jamie, do you have any final um, things that you've been burning, uh, burning questions that you might want to ask? At this well, point? I'm just going to pick up actually on the, the, uh, the performance tables that uh, in theory, uh, the, the main, perhaps the main audience is uh, parents and um, they are there to inform parents uh, making choices about the schools they want to send their children to. Um, I suppose my argument would be that you're, you're boiling the complexity of a school down to sing, a single number in the case of Progress 8 or a series of numbers, series of progress measures that most people don't understand mm. putting out there in the public domain slapping a colour on it which is supposed to give some guidance and claiming it's below average and you've got a confidence interval that hides in the background there that again most people don't really understand um so i, I think that's highly problematic i'm just making a statement really it's not I, a question. I, mean, I, I completely agree you know in my everyday life people don't know who i am and i have other parents in the village constantly confidently tell me exactly how the school admission system works what Ofsted is, how school performance tables um, are used. These are all highly educated people who are completely and utterly wrong about all three of these things um, consistently. And it's really reaffirmed my view that, that largely the system's not operating on these things. But also, if we really cared about pupil um, parent choice, we would do a lot more around other things that parents really desperately want to know about with schools, which is like... What's your breakfast club provision? What are your extracurricular activities? How long is your lunch? Are there going to be clubs at lunch? My kid loves chess. Is there going to be a chess club? Um, they want to know, um, yeah, all the stuff around the childcare arrangements, the extracurricular arrangements, a lot more clarity about how things like GCSE options work. Like, like it's almost impossible, even though my child is in year seven, for me to find out, like, what subjects could she take? How are they arranged? If, you know, if she wants to take triple science, like, does that mean she drops something else? Like, there's no information there and loads of practical things that parents want to know. You only have to go onto, like, Facebook community groups to see what do parents really care about in school mm. choice. It's, they're not there chatting about the SAT scores, particularly in case of primary schools that really don't care about the SAT scores. They care about a whole load of other stuff about how the school is arranged and whether it's going to be able to fit in with their daily lives or not. Excellent. Yes, yeah. I, speaking as a, a parent of teenagers, is that I agree entirely. That sense yeah. that I know that something's happening in this secondary school, and I'm sure they're doing a good job. You know, I do yeah. trust them to to do it, and most of the time it looks like yeah. they are. But then you try and find the details, and and you and you realise, mm. ah, okay. And it's that whole thing with lots of things. You don't want um, you know individual pupils to fall between gaps, uh, and you don't ever want to get to the position where somebody says to you, oh, well, because of something that happened two years ago, your mm. options have changed, which is the mm. last thing you want to have happen. Mm. Which is where I think you know you meaning information for, for for parents particularly as you go through secondary school something mm. that gives them some indication is you know is my child what what's the track that they're on broadly mm. you know i think again mm. in data proof your school we, we make the case that actually what you need to know is is my child trying to learn things in year seven year eight year nine year ten because if they're trying to learn things they probably are learning things if they're not mm. trying to learn things or they mm. don't appear to be learning then we can do something about it but that's a broader broader picture uh, again i'm just going to finish with just in terms of uh, as because we, we talk about data proof schools and schools that, that don't mm. do too much but do enough do the right things um 
have you got a, a broad idea as to as to what if if you, if you were to, to be somebody to to be running a school what you've said a number of things but broadly once things are up and running what kinds of things would you expect to see in, in a school that that knows what it's doing with the data that it covers um I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment because I'm writing a book about secondary school assessment systems. Um, And I think everyone in the school should just think about this challenge of um, how is this data helping us promote learning within the school? So everything should be subservient to the view of how are we promoting data? I think that challenges a lot that goes on around departmental monitoring, around governors, around parent reporting. And I think when you um, you start from that perspective and then you also start with the perspective of what does attainment really mean? It's something that actually a lot of assessment experts are weirdly silent on. You read books written about assessment without really deeply thinking about why is assessment so different in different subjects? Well, we need to get deeply into the question of like, what does attainment mean in the subject? And that, of course, is about us trying to conceptualise our curriculums knowledge architecture and the way our pedagogy sits against that Um, and that helps us really explain why measuring attainment is so easy in some subjects maths and so complex in subjects like art because it's deeply embedded in our in our idea of the curriculum so for me if I see an assessment need in the school I want them to be deeply thinking about the nature of each subject's curriculum thinking about what attainment um, means and then and then once we get there we should naturally once we think about those things think about why it's so damaging that we ask schools to measure attainment um, consistently in every single subject regardless of the nature of attainment so we always say you can measure assess attainment any way you want but it has to be reported as a percentage And we can immediately see why that doesn't make sense once we're thinking deeply about the nature of attainment. So there you have it. We hope that our discussion with Becky will help you to consider how you use education data and how you might adapt your practice in future. The Data Busters podcast is published regularly during the academic year and is available on all good podcasts. And if you like what we're doing, please do recommend us to others. And if you've got any questions, feel free to send in a voice recording or to contact us on Twitter, either at DataBusting or at jpenbroke. As you'll have heard, the inaugural Data in School conference, our Data Disco, in Warrington in October is now sold out. But don't worry, the first Data Disco south of the trend at Brentford Community Stadium on the 9th of November is currently on sale via Eventbrite. If you'd like us to put on a data busting day near you, please do get in touch and we'll see what we can do. And don't forget to order your copy of Data Proof Your School and let us know what you think about our solutions for schools. So until we meet again, keep data busting.